Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and on this episode of our podcast, even though it's not even Christmas yet, and we're just barely over Hanukkah, we are talking New Year's Eve, and why are we talking New Year's Eve? Because you got to plan what you're making for dinner. <laughs> so we're going to talk all about planning for a New Year's Eve celebration. We have all kinds of ideas, and we want to get these ideas out there because there is still time to do some of this and to order some of what we're going to tell you. In fact, you might want to listen to this episode of our podcast with a pen and pencil in hand. So let's get straight to it. What to serve for New Year's Eve. You know, New Year's Eve can be just as fraught for a lot of people as Thanksgiving. Oh. It is. And oh, people freak out over God. Thanksgiving. And look, do you do a sit-down dinner? Oh, do you do cocktail God. nibbles? Thanksgiving is the holiday that has diarrhea before and after it. It's just... <laughs> and sometimes during it. Oh, my God. People so, are so crazy about it. Well, New Year's Eve, too. Do you want to serve food at 6, at 8, at midnight? I Two. Mean, <laughs> well, we didn't... Listen, when, we, when I was a kid, we... So now I'm just going to say that this is what kind of Southern Protestant home I grew up in. We didn't do anything for New Year's Eve. And then we ate, once again, a turkey at about 2 o'clock on New Year's Day. <laughs> it was like the turkeys in a row. You know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Eve. It was like bang, that's bang, bang, That's the only time turkeys. you would eat turkey, period. No, my gosh. You don't eat turkey other times. Don't be insane. What are you, some some kind of non-Protestant person? Yes. Yes, I am. Okay, go ahead. So Mark and I love quiet New Year's Eves. And over the past few years, we kind of just sit around. We play bridge with another couple. Right. I serve steak tartare and chocolate chip cookies. and That has always been our thing is a very quiet evening person i play a lot of bridge and a quiet evening usually with just one other couple and you know drink some champagne have chocolate chip cookies if you haven't ever had chocolate chip cookies and champagne together you are not living your <laughs> best life mm, you're not so. but big gatherings can be fun and so we want to share some ideas for food that will help make your life easier on new year's eve okay so the most important new year's eve rule that we can think of is that if you're having more than just a few friends over if you're doing more and we even do this with just one other couple listen serve room temper cold food don't be mm-hmm. insane don't don't try to pull out you know i don't know what beef what, wellington cassoulet beef cassoulet on top of beef wellington or something <laughs> on the side <laughs> it's a side dish oh god my stomach hurts we're back to diarrhea um don't try to serve that all at once uh, and don't try to pull off that kind of balancing act. It's New Year's Eve. You should enjoy yourself. You know what? Here's my thing. If you are using the holidays as a way to recharge, you are overworked. A holiday is supposed to be about celebration, not recharging. So celebrate and do it as simply as possible. So what do you suggest if someone wants to, let's say you're having eight or ten people over, what right. are some good ideas that are cold at room temp? Well, I think that what I have done in the past, and I have done this, is I have poached a side of salmon in advance and then served it cold with a nice yogurt sauce on the side. That's lovely. Yeah, with, you know, shredded cucumbers and a little bit of onion in the sauce, kind of tzatziki-like. You have this nice cold poached salmon that you can make two or three days in advance and then you just pull it out of the fridge and it's cold i realize it's freezing outside especially where we live in new england it's freezing on new year's eve but listen it's so easy Mm -hmm. and it goes good with champagne Mm -hmm. you can also do you know a beef tenderloin that's served cold you can make that ahead and thinly slice it with some horseradish sauce but here's the thing but we if you roasted a beef tenderloin two days in advance Mm -hmm. and you kept it in your fridge and then when everybody arrives you pulled it out and let it sit out on the counter for an hour or so and then slice it up it's going to be near 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 not quite near room temperature 
get some horseradish sauce. It's going to be delicious. And another thing you could do with that is smear that cold beef with mustard and roll it in chopped parsley. Yeah. That's, and that's a very classic way to do that's it. That's Bruce's old trick. He used to take beef tenderloins, cook them, and then after they were cooked, again, just to be clear, after it's cooked. And it, after yeah, it's cooled. After it's cooled and roasted and everything. Then right when you're ready to serve it, chop up the parsley or a million herbs, thyme, mm-hmm. oregano, rosemary, tarragon, do your pick. Chop up a billion fresh herbs so that it's all green on the outside. Coat the outside of the beef tenderloin in mustard. Uh, if you're me, it's got to be a no spanking mustard, like a really big Dijon mustard. And then just roll it in all those chopped herbs. Not only is it delicious, but it's beautiful because, you know, the yellow and the green, it it's very pretty. And if you don't feel like cooking at all, you can order, you know, pre-cooked smoked beef tenderloin from Perini Ranch via Gold Belly. You all know about Gold Belly. We can okay, say that again so we know. Go to goldbelly.com and put in the search thing, smoked tenderloin, beef mm. tenderloin. Mm. And there was one that I saw the other day from Perini Ranch. Smoke. And that would be good. Mm. You can also, if you don't want to poach a whole side of salmon, you could buy a side of hot smoked salmon. Mm. And that will be give you the same kind of texture. Uh, Mackenzie Limited, that's Mac, M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E-L-T-D, McKenzieLimited.com. They have them. Um, and it's so easy. You just break off pieces yeah. and slice them. And may I also say that you can go right back for New Year's Eve to the old Jewish appetizing idea. Mm. Right? And you serve smoked salmon and bagels and cream cheese and pickles. Well, like know. a bris. <laughs> Well, that's a new year, kind of. Um, <laughs> it's a new something. Yeah, it's a new something. Something's been cut off. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can go and do the old what uh, in Jewish culture is often called appetizing in North American Jewish culture. And, uh, you know, you get lots of different kinds of smoked salmon spread and herring and whatever. And you put it out with bagels. It's personally my favorite thing to have. I knew I had married into the right family when one of the first thing I did with Bruce is I went to his grandmother's shiva after her funeral and they had sable on salt bagels with cream cheese. It was fabulous and I had married into the correct <laughs> family. If you don't know about what sable on a salt bagel with cream cheese tastes like, you are again not living your best life. You aren't. Okay, so the other thing we have to think about for New Year's Eve is what you're serving to drink. Uh, so Look, champagne, it's a classic, right? Everybody goes for it. We yep. love it. I do. And there are so many different kinds of champagnes out there, aren't there? There are. And I I guess I have to tell this story since we've brought up champagne. When we started our food career back in the late 90s, we became the luxury travel correspondents for Wine Spectator in Europe. And we went, basically when magazines had expense accounts, we went. Basically when there were magazines. (laughs) We went to (laughs) Europe on Wine Spectator's dollar, which was big. And we we would travel around and we didn't write about wine. We wrote about luxury travel experiences, restaurant reviews, etc. And I remember, this is really crazy. We'd been writing for Wine Spectator for about a year and a half, two years. And we were in Champagne. Champagne. We were in Champagne somewhere at some fancy restaurant. And we were drinking Champagne in the middle of our meal. You know, I don't know what we were having. I don't know. Well, let's say roast pork. And we were drinking Champagne. 
And I had this revelation that champagne is wine. And I looked up at Bruce and I said to Bruce, champagne is wine. And what I meant by that is it's not just something to be served before dinner or for festive occasions, Mm -hmm. but you can drink it with dinner. It was this giant revelation to this wine spectator writer. Wow. It tells you how naive I could be at times. And there's so many kinds of champagne and they all taste different. Mm. Champagne isn't one thing. There are thousands of producers around the world of champagne. Now, if you want to be real champagne, you have to come from the Champagne region, but there are still hundreds of producers in Champagne. And when we were at that restaurant, Mark talked about, oh my goodness, the Champagne list went on. It was like a book. They did. We used to have to submit the the wine list to Wine Spectator for the restaurants that we went to. They wanted us to prove they had a decent wine program. And this place, I swear, it had a good 30 to 40 pages of champagnes on their wine list. It was unbelievable. But there are lots out there. Um, Your local wine store can help you choose a champagne. Not all of them are absurdly pricey. Yes, of course, many champagnes are pricey. Not all of them are. And furthermore, if you want to cut costs just a little bit, consider doing (laughs) what we often do, which is that you have a really nice bottle of champagne to start and then you have some prosecco or cava to finish it up with because once you're drunk you won't notice that you've <laughs> gone to the cheaper stuff but mark said cava and prosecco cava is just the champagne of spain yes um, prosecco is the bubbly wine of italy but right. there's another bubbly wine from italy too um lambrusco which is often red but sometimes i feel white. like we're back to the bris again but go ahead with the lambrusco cold duck <laughs> But you can get a lovely frizzante, which is a slightly bubbly white bet the kids today don't even know what cold duck is. They probably think it's Andre cold duck. They probably think it is one of these cold things you serve for dinner, like the cold beef tenderloin (laughs) cold duck. It's not. It's a sparkling, crappy red wine that was like $2 a bottle. Cold duck. Um, I got... Uh, drunk. I will admit, the first time I ever got drunk, I was 13 at a friend's bar mitzvah. See, uh, this Protestant has always been around the Jews. And I was at a friend's bar mitzvah, and they were serving cold duck, and my father caught us having had several glasses. You and the Ratner boy. Yes, staring, apparently, into an aquarium, <laughs> and just watching the fish move around. I wonder what he would have thought if you were staring into each other's eyes. Oh. Okay, that, let's have a family show. So <laughs> so the other thing about it, let me, wait, wait, I I want to say, I want to say, wait, 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 one more thing. Okay. I love kava. Mm. I think kava is one of the most underrated mm-hmm. things on this planet. The mm-hmm. sparkling wines from Spain and from certain regions of Spain. And without going into giant technicalities of kava and how it's grown and what wines count as kava, let us just say that you can go in any wine store and ask for the kava. And kava is a spectacular choice. Bruce and I drink all kinds of cavas and lately we've even gotten into sparkling argentinian wines but that's Mm, a whole different ball of wax but then you got another problem and it's not just the cost or that you don't want to go to cava prosecco there are people believe it or not who don't like bubbly wine i don't know them or (laughs) they don't like champagne i don't know they don't like bubbles in their wine or they don't even like white wine i don't know them so here's my suggestion Stock up on lighter reds for New Year's Eve because people are probably going to be drinking all night long. Right. And big, heavy reds will just start to become overwhelming and give you a headache. So stock up on pinots and lighter lighter reds. And don't forget the rosés. They're not just for summer. Yeah, rosés are not just for summer. And also, let me also say that you will have guests, I believe, who do not drink or want to stop drinking at some point. Again, I don't know these people. But who want to stop drinking at some point. And, you know, you should 
always make sure that you have a non-alcoholic something, whether it be a nice fruity spritz or a seltzer or even a juice combo that you make up yourself. Look online at thousands of sites now for mocktails, including mock cocktail punches. You can put these together with lots of fruit juices and sparkling waters and etc. They make a wonderful alternative and I am always pleased to drink them when I go to other people's houses, even though I'm still drinking the wine. <laughs> always. Always. Now desserts, don't go crazy and don't even bake. Let the bake let the bakery do it. Yeah. You know, even I if agree you just go to the bakery section of your supermarket, you're gonna find all sorts of little mini French pastries and macarons yep. Yep. and little Italian cannolis. Yep. Get those. Don't and, do it. Don't do it yourself. And let me tell you that everybody loves an ice cream bar. So go crazy. Mm. Put out several different kinds of high end ice creams that are local to your area. And no one will turn it down. It is just one of those things. And I believe that New Year's Eve is one of those holidays in which you should take it easy because you're easing into the new year. Don't kill yourself. There are other holidays where you can kill yourself, like Arbor Day or, <laughs> I don't know, Tishbaov. But it's <laughs> Jewish Arbor Day. <laughs> Yeah, whatever or Jewish so, Halloween <laughs> Purim. Purim. you can kill yourself on other holidays but on this holiday just try to take it easy because listen this is supposed to be going into the new year and you need to go into the new year celebrating I saw the other day someone post on social media that they were walking down the street and I found this so endearing and I know half of social media is a lie so maybe this was a lie but I don't care I still want to believe it that they were walking down the street and there was an older couple ahead of them and she claimed that he turned to her and said well honey we made it to another December and there was something so sweet about that and you should take that spirit into New Year's Eve we made <laughs> God, we made it through 2021. Who could believe it? And we're on our way to 2022 and make it as easy as possible. And just a reminder, George Jetson was born in 2022. Oh, God. So he was conceived actually like last week. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Up next, our one-minute cooking tip. That is our patented one-minute cooking tip in which, well, usually in slightly more than a minute, we give you the best of our cooking advice. And what is it this episode hold your skillet over the sink when you spray it with nonstick spray oh. so you don't get grease everywhere and this is a two-parter never ever ever spray the nonstick spray on the pan while it's over a flame no never and bruce is saying this because he's been cussed out by me way too many times because he of course is very chefy and he just picks up a pan and sprays it and all of a sudden it's all over the counters and everything and my mom always said work in the sink my mother mixes batters in the sink she does everything in the sink so you can wash it down and now i think that we finally have ascertained that nonstick spray goes all over everything so work in the sink as my mom would tell you before we move on to the next segment, I should say that uh, please subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, give us a comment. A comment does wonders for the analytics. We're working hard, do a little hard work in response, and we will most appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for your support and your continued listening to this podcast. It's hard to believe how many thousands listen to it every month. Uh, neither of us can really believe it as we sit here recording episode after episode. Okay, up next, Bruce's interview with McKenna Held. McKenna has bought 
Julia Child's summer home in France and turned it into a cooking school. So this should be a historical and also interesting interview. Take it away, Bruce. I'm so excited to be speaking with entrepreneur McKenna Held, who in a fit of inspiration and passion bought La Pichon, Julia Child's vacation home in France, and began a journey that has led her family to the south of France, where you can come and stay in absolute luxury. And if you want, learn to cook in one of the most famous culinary households in the world. Hi, McKenna. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> thanks for coming on. So you've had a lifelong passion and obsession with all things French, haven't you? Yes, I, I say it's one of my endearing characteristics, but it also might be one of my annoying ones. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I read that you you dreamed about learning about manatees with Jacques Cousteau. That's, uh, that's very endearing. Yes, it's true. When I was a little kid that I really wanted to learn how to speak French so that I could communicate with Jacques Cousteau because I thought for sure I wanted to study manatees and be a marine biologist. And the only person I knew who was doing work with manatees was Jacques. And I figured since he was French, I'd probably need to learn French to work on his team. <laughs> That's so cool. So it's like the burning question. How did you end up with Julia Child's home? You know, I had watched the 100 foot journey about a year before the house came on the market, which if listeners don't know about it. It's a delightful movie. It's based on a book about a family that moves from India to the UK to France to open an Indian restaurant across from a Michelin star restaurant. And it's a beautiful movie about love and culture and friendship and takes a lot of unique views about France. And it just hit me that I really wanted to move in France and just cook for people all the time. I was just kind of struck by the notion that that was even possible. I think that I had always heard and felt like France was unattainable unless I got a job. And then I realized France didn't have to be unattainable, kind of sunk into my head, whether it was fiction or not, since the book is fiction, I started to believe it could be possible. So when the house came on the market, I, she was a Smith College graduate, Julia Child. I was a Smith College graduate. I saw it on an alumni forum on Facebook. And I was just so captivated by the house and its quaintness. And it felt very accessible. And it felt more affordable than a lot of the other things I was looking at in the areas I was living in. I was a ski instructor at Beaver Creek at the time. And I'll tell you, houses weren't that much cheaper than what I was seeing her house be available for. And I just kind of thought, well, it seems like the best opportunity with the best bang for its buck, marketing-wise, business potential-wise, let's see if we can make it happen. So it was a combination of passion for France and French cooking and a business sense. You saw this house as a business opportunity. Absolutely. And I saw it as a historical opportunity, and I saw it as that conjoining. And also the fact that we had that through line that both of us were very tall, people who graduated from Smith. It, it seemed like a really easy PR push and it was did the house take much renovation or did you have to fix up very much before you were able to um open it up to allow people to come and stay so it took about six people working more than full time for six weeks to get it ready just kind of cleaning decluttering organizing kathy alex the woman who had lived there before me had lived there for just about 20 years and had run a cooking school there and was in failing health and so there was a lot of work to be done behind the scenes, but from the outside, that first year at least, everything looked great other than decluttering and cleaning. 
And very quickly that changed. It, it was very clear that the deferred maintenance was, was rearing its ugly head. First, it was the septic twice, like complete redoing of septic systems. Uh, the second time it was the roof, realizing that it had a succulent garden living on it. And that succulent garden had thrived for about 10 years, but finally those succulents had done their job pushing their way through the tiny little holes in terracotta splitting tiles. Then it was clear that there were all sorts of other issues, electricity, and it was just kind of one thing after the other. So the first year, nickel, very easy, beautiful. And then since then, whoo, it's been a labor of love, but worth it for the most part. And how long did you have the house before you decided you were going to start your own cooking school there? I knew going into the buy that that was the plan. I, I didn't know exactly how. I have this wild hair of an idea that I wanted to teach recipe-free cooking. I, I felt there was a, a break that I had seen from my friends who had gone to culinary school go from being very competent cooks to being able to actually be chefs. And there was no one bridging that gap except for working in restaurants. And then it's trial by fire. It's not actually learning and implementing the theories and practices it's if you don't do this right i will cut you with knife and then you're dealing with it that way and i i found that to be problematic that there had to be a better way to teach people to cook so i had this wild hair of an idea we were going to go do this recipe free cooking thing but i had no idea how and you call the school the courageous cooking school tell me the philosophy behind behind this courageous cooking school yeah. So we argue about the name regularly because we get a lot of clients who are like, I feel like I already need to be courageous. And we always like to remind people that no, the goal is to build greater courage, whether you are scared to boil an egg, because every egg you've ever boiled has split open and sent white flying everywhere, to the fact that you're an expert searer and you can follow recipes to the tea, but the idea of making your own sauce makes you want to like completely just lose it and you just get anxiety, that notion. And so we're looking at helping individuals really dive deep into what I call capacity to think on their feet and to think with their taste buds rather than to think from someone else's taste buds. Because that's what cookbooks do. They're a great way to approach things, but they end there. You're following someone else's taste buds. You're not following your own. And everybody has different tastes. They do. There is a little irony that that this wonderful philosophy of cooking without recipes is happening in the home of Julia Child who wrote so many cookbooks. Yes. Um, but <laughs> the irony is not lost on me. <laughs> <laughs> but she did teach fabulous techniques. Um, and she did in her shows, at least always have this philosophy that if it falls on the floor, don't worry about it, pick it up and serve it anyway. I mean, so it was never perfection wasn't necessarily her goal. No. And I love that you claim that failure is now an option. Explain that. I think that failure is inevitable. And that's what scares people is the inevitability of failure because there's lost time when it comes to cooking. There's lost money when it com comes to cooking. Like when a dish fails, you've lost the money and people are on various types of budgets and we have to be aware of that. And it is going to happen. And I think that's why a lot of people think that they are broken when it comes to cooking because they will fail. And if, if they don't have a base understanding, recipes will naturally fail them because medium high heat on your stove, Bruce, is different than medium high heat on my stove. I own two stoves. I have an induction and a gas. And my induction is vastly different. It doesn't even have medium high. It goes from one to 14. Wait, wait, okay, so medium high is nine? No, medium high is your food might burn and you might like set your 
steak on fire. <laughs> and so I think being able to learn some of that takes time and failure is inevitable. So it's not just so much that it's an option. It's that the only way to have success is to fail. And I think that being afraid of failure is natural. Do not get me wrong. But if we understand that it's inevitable and we have the courage to fail anyway, it changes how we approach things. It won't change the budget. Like, don't get me wrong. If you are on a fixed food budget, that won't solve the problems by ruining a recipe. This is why good recipes are important. But if you're in a place where you're trying to get better at cooking and you have some flexibility to do so, going at it from a different angle, we, we have like a pyramid model that we teach where we encourage people to think differently about food. And it allows people to have the space to know that they will fail, but that the failures oftentimes are fixable if you have the technique down. Through this philosophy, you claim that anyone who loves to eat can learn to cook and that you can turn any timid cook into a courageous chef. How do you do that? How do you turn a timid home home cook into a courageous chef? Typically what we do is come from an ingredients first approach, which isn't a new approach, but we really focus on the quality of the things that you're starting with being key but also understanding the limitations of what you have access to. When people come to our school, we're in the south of France. We go to one of the best markets in the world. It's 10 minutes away. Why wouldn't we? Naturally, that's going to mean that your end result is going to be better than what you can do if you live in, say, a borderline food desert in the United States where your access to produce is really minimal. But if you know that a carrot is in a beef bourguignon because of sweetness, and depth, that kind of like earthy thing and the sweet thing. If you can't find carrots that week, what else can you put in that provides sweetness and earthiness? You can have a spice that provides earthiness. You could add a little touch of honey to add sweetness. So if we start to actually break these things down and stop viewing things as like, must have carrot, must have onion, and knowing what those ingredients actually lend, to a dish, we're able to find substitutions and replacements, which is, I think, super important. Yeah, I love that you are making this distinction. There is a difference between following a recipe and actually learning why you are doing that. And I think you can learn to cook with recipes. Obviously, plenty of people have done it for years and years and years. I just don't think it is the most efficient way to build a large cadre of skills and knowledges that allows you to cook greater options of things. It's a way, it's just not the most efficient. I know that COVID was really hard on tourist destinations and you were not immune to that, um, but the world is opening up again and people are coming back. I hope you are finding more people coming. Are, are you full? Are you registered out? Are people signing up? Yes, kind of. I, you know, it's very hard. We're a small community oriented cooking school for six people. And I think we've been told for a year and a half that that's exactly what we shouldn't be doing. But we had a fall season. It was abbreviated, but we had five full sold out weeks instead of eight. So that was great. It was a breath of fresh air after being closed for a full year and a half. And yes, we're starting to see people sign up. I think there are a lot of people who rescheduled for next spring to wait to see how fall went. And we're like, let's see how many people get COVID. Zero, not a one. We're, we're very good, lucky and very uh, grateful that the rules of coming into France include vaccinations and tests and 
the things that keep a small community like ours safe. We don't go very many places. So it's really just like you come to us and then we're together. And so the risk factor is pretty low. We're very much, we're not even slow travel. We're immersive in one place within 20 miles travel. Like We're really close. So yes, slowly, but surely. But the fall brought a lot of joy and brought all the right people at the right time. The type of person who's going to travel at this point during COVID is going to be unique. And you're also going to find a clientele I believe, who want to come with a passion and yes. their passion is going to match yours. And that's going to be the success of learning to cook with you at La Peach. Absolutely. McKenna held Thank you for spending your time. Thanks for telling us about your cooking school at La Pichon. If people want to find out more and availability, they can go to www.lapeech.com and they can read more about the school or just renting out Julia Child's house. Lots of good luck with it. And I look forward to maybe coming out there and seeing you in France. Ooh, please do. That was a great interview and extraordinarily wild to have a recipe-free cooking school in Julia Child's own home. It's kind of a wild idea. I love the chutzpah of it. <laughs> Wait, let me do that in the Protestant way. I love the chutzpah of it. I love... Oh, dear. <laughs> and I love the whole story behind it. So finally, our typical last segment, prototypical last segment, what's making us happy in food this week? And I think you're up first. For me, it's parsnips. Oh. I am loving me the parsnips, mm. especially mm. done in the air fryer. Yeah, talk about that. So you peel the parsnips, you cut them into like little size of baby carrots. So like the thin end, you could just cut into one inch pieces. So you and then cut the- them lengthwise down the parsnip right well i cut off the bottom part that looks that's pretty thin and then the fat part i cut down the length of it into quarters or six depending on how thick it is so everything's about the same size okay and i just toss them with a little bit of olive oil or spray them in a bowl in the sink Mm. and then they go into a 400 degree air fryer for about 20 to 25 minutes tossing them around and you have parsnip fries that are unbelievable. They really are unbelievable. We've had more parsnip fries in the last few weeks than you could possibly imagine <laughs> because we both are just in love with them. You can serve them with ketchup. Yes, indeed, you can. Mm-hmm. You can air fry them and have air fried Brussels sprouts on the side. We've done that several times in the last few weeks. Air fried parsnips are an amazing thing. And what's making me happy then in food this week is duck. Duck mm, is a duck. fabulous thing. And Bruce roasted a duck the other night because I asked for it. And roasted duck is is still one of my all-time favorite things in life. And you should consider roasting a duck for your friends at some celebratory event, although not New Year's Eve because it's (laughs) too much work. So here's the thing about duck, though. It's very fatty, and a lot of people don't like to roast it because it smokes up the house. So here's the way I do it. Put the duck on a rack in a covered roasting pan. So you have like one of those roasters with a cover and you put a few inches of water in the bottom and you steam the damn duck for an hour. And it gets, you first you have to poke the skin like mm. with a fork, mm-hmm. do it on an angle so that you're really not going into the meat. You just want to poke the fat. You steam it for an hour, like so much fat comes out, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Then take the duck out of that pan, let it sit on a cutting board for an hour or so till it's dry, really important. And then I salt it like crazy in and out. Then I heat the oven up to 375, 
and I roast the duck for 45 minutes breast side down, then 45 minutes breast side up. There will be almost no fat in the bottom of that roasting bait because it all came down the steamer. Yeah, and you know what? Duck doesn't have to be a cardio killer. It can be a fabulous dinner, and roast birds are fabulous all around, and I loved my roast duck. I can't mm-hmm. wait for the next one. So thanks so much for listening to this episode of the podcast, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we hope you will come back for another episode. And we hope you'll subscribe so you won't miss a single episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.